Look at the first, Mike, if you want to go to the fighter verse. Mike, do we have the fighter verse up there? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Oh God, I pray that you would come and fill us with your presence to bless us by your Holy Spirit. Build up your church and unify us and you bless us through the singing and through the message and through prayers. And oh God, drive our hearts to be obsessed with what you're obsessed with. The glory of your name among all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. This is uh, what we're calling our, our Faith Missions Month or Missions Conference. And today and last week, we're especially focusing on foreign missions. And I want to invite you to take your bulletin. In your bulletin, you should have had a sheet that has kind of like an insert for missions giving. What we do is we support several missionaries. They're all listed in the, mission, in, in the bulletin. They have pictures of them. These are missionaries that we are partnering with them, including Brian and Mac. Brian McFell Fossey and Heather and Phoebe, they're, they're members of our church, but we support them and we support them through your giving. And so we ask that you would prayerfully see how would God move us this year to give on a regular basis above and beyond our regular tithes. I'm thankful that we're getting close to the end of the year. We, had to, we increased some giving last year and our giving is above Giving, don't give because you see there's a need, like I need to meet, it, meet the need. Give because God is moving your heart to partner with us for the sake of the great commission of God's great cause of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So that's the first thing. This is something to be filled out in the next few weeks. So we'll be sharing this with you next week, but I wanted to let you know about that. So we gather Secondly, we gather on Wednesday nights to pray and to study the Bible. But I want to invite you especially in two weeks, in two weeks to join us on November 4th. It's actually a week and a half from now. The day after the presidential elections, we encourage you, even if you don't normally come on Wednesdays, to come on Wednesday night, the 4th. We're going to have an all-church prayer meeting for our country, for our nation, as we either will be in a place where we'll have a president that gets reelected or a president-elect, or we're in limbo land waiting to see when the count is all done. And it could be really rough, but we as God's people, we look to another citizenship. We look to Christ Jesus, and we will gather, and we're going to pray for our leaders, leaders that are elected, just elected, that continue on as elected. We're going to pray for them and ask that God would prosper the work of his gospel, his church in the world. Will you join us on November 4th for that time? A few other things to let you know about. If you're, if you're new to Faith Church, uh, whether you're not, maybe you're not a member and you're interested in becoming a member, or you're just new and you want to get to know what's going on, what, what is this church all about? Molly and I would love to invite you to our house on November 13th. It's a Friday night. We're going to have a dinner. Uh, and then what we do is we go through kind of a, a get-to-know-faith church. I, I talked to you about what membership is all about, what makes us tick, um, and, and just what does it mean to be part of the faith church community. 
And I hope that you're able to join us. If you are, we'd love to know if you're coming and there's a sign-up outside in the hallway for you to sign up. Love to have you come. That's going to be Friday, 6 o'clock, supper's included, on the 6th of no, uh, at 6 o'clock on the 13th of November. Uh, two more announcements to let you know about. Next week, we are going to start a series on the Psalms. We're going to do about six Psalms at the, through the end of this year and then pick up some into next year. But we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 next Sunday. So I encourage you to study or to read or to pray through Psalm 1 in preparation for next week's sermon. It is six verses. It is a worthy passage to memorize. It is so foundational. And so that'll be next week. I just wanted to get your mind and your heart, start thinking about that. This time is even more blessed as you prepare your hearts, prepare your minds for the message. The last thing I want to say before we go into singing is, we said at the beginning of this month that we thought we were going to go to one service on November 1st. We're going to delay that. So we are going to have two services next Sunday. We're going to have probably two services through the end of the year because of the kind of COVID increase in our region, in our state. Uh, I'm so thankful that we can continue to meet in person. There are some that are, are watching us online and are not able to come yet in person, but we're going to continue to have um, two services, 9 and 11, not one service or Sunday school yet. Probably we'll be doing that through the end of this year. And so I'm, I wish we were going back to one, but I'm thankful for our opportunity to still meet and gather 9 and 11 next week, but you get an extra hour of sleep because you turn your clock backwards one hour. So we'll have a lighter morning, we'll have brighter mornings and darker evenings. So... Let's, let's go to God. Father, would you use these songs, would you use the message of the life of John Patton to just drive our hearts to you? Would you, God, would you just grip us with the great commission to make disciples of all peoples? God, I pray, I pray, Father, that the one who said all authority, all power has been given to him, would give a th- his authority and power would be at work in such an evident way during this service in gripping our hearts to this great commission. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join me by turning to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew 28, the great commission, verses 18 through 20. Two words of introduction about my message. I would inclu- encourage you to take the back of your bulletin for notes. And you will see that my message this morning is going to be a very different message than a normal message at church. It's going to be a biography message about a man in church history. I pray that God will use it during this missions conference as I go in depth in the life of a man named John Patton. That God would use it in your life and in my life, in our church's life, to stir in us something that we didn't have before in our hearts as we learn and listen about a man. And I want you to think in terms of this is a brother of ours, a brother in Christ who lived 150 years ago that we now get to learn about, that our Father in Heaven says, learn from your older brother and follow his ways. 
One of the words that I'm going to use because he quotes this word, he uses this word throughout his writings is the word the heathen. Maybe we don't use that or it's used as in a derogatory term. But when John uses the term heathen, he means the lost people of the world, the people without Christ. So I wanted to make sure, clarify that. God, please help me. Help us. As John just prayed, I add, I pray that some of the teens in this room would in the years to come hear a call to go to the hard places of the world and they'll say, here am I, send me. I pray that parents will let them go. And in fact, they will be praying that they'll go because they love your mission. I pray that the elderly in this church would just be so full of zeal for the Great Commission that they would love to give and to pray like never before and to encourage the young people of this church to spend their lives for Christ. But of course, Father, we pray that for all the nations of the world and we pray for our country and in our community now. God, just stir in us this passion. In Jesus' name, amen. John Patton writes, When pleading the cause of the heathen and the claims of Jesus on his followers, I have often been taunted with being a man of one idea. Sometimes I have thought they came from the lips of those who do not even have one idea, unless it were how to kill time or save their own skin. But seriously speaking, is it not better to have one good idea than to live and to live for that one and succeed in it than to scatter one's life away on many things and make a mark on none? A man of one idea, a life, the life and lessons of John G. Patton, king of the cannibals. Are you a man of one idea, a woman of one idea? What idea drives your life? What passion drives your life? Does anything? Does anything stir you up? And is it something that matters? It should be for Christ's followers. The one idea of a person is Jesus Christ and his mission to us, which is found in the passage I asked you to turn, Matthew 28, verse 18. Look with me. And Jesus said, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Means all authority, all power. I'm sovereign and supreme. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That means all peoples, all ethnicities, all tongues, all peoples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see the command? And do you see the two realities that undergird the command or marching orders? See the command? Go make disciples. And do you see the two realities? Reality one, number one, I've been given all authority, Jesus says. And so, by the way, don't think that I'm going to give you a command and I'm not going to give you the energy, the zeal, the power, the Holy Spirit's work to do that command. I have authority 
You better believe it. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Faith Church, that isn't for just the Max who are in Cameroon or the Livingstons in India or somebody else. This is for us today. This is our mission for Flint and Linden, for Swartz Creek and Hawley. It is for us today. It is God's command to us. It is called the Great Commission. Jesus says, I've, given, I've been given all authority. Now go, and by the way, you're going to make disciples because I'm going to be in it, and I'm never going to leave you. Now what does this have to do with John G. Patton, king of the cannibals? Well, in Genesis 11, God scattered at the Tower of Babel all these tongues and languages and peoples, and they scattered to the ends of the earth, and some went to the far south seas, the Polynesian islands, Vanuatu, 80 islands, and some ended up on those islands. In 1773, a Captain Cook discovered these islands, called them the New Hebrides, wrote all these writings about these islands. People in Europe, in England, read these things and said two responses. Oh, romantic, romantic islanders, wonderful, untainted from Europe. They must be wonderful. They must be at ease. And the others who read their Bible knew they're in darkness. They don't have any light. They need the light of the gospel. So John Williams and John Harris go and land an, an island of those, Aramanga, in 1839. And instantly, within a few minutes of their landing, they were beaten to death and clubbed to death by these savages. They proceeded to cook them and feast on their bodies. One writer says, There thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs. And the Christ thereby told the entire Christian world that he claimed these islands for himself. So in 1850, Getty from, from Canada, Nova Scotia, he had this call, this burden, and he goes to these islands. He goes to one of them, Needham, and the gospel took root. God started to do a work, and disciples were made. A church was built up, and he sent word back to the West, to Canada, to England, to Scotland, and America, we need missionaries. And in Scotland, no one heard the response except a man named John and his friend, John Patton early 30s, not a pastor yet, but been trained for this very work. John Patton was born in May 24th of 1824, oldest of 11 kids to James and Janet Patton in southern Scotland. And it was a happy home, a godly home. And oh, parents, if, if, if you'd read the book, John Patton, Missionary to the New Hebrides. It was the autobiography of this man. And just read the first three chapters. It would be worth five times the price of that $25 book. Because it would probably stir, I, if you have a heart for God, it will stir your heart even more to a godly life. And John tells the life about his mom and his dad, and his dad's prayers changed his life. He said, I remember my father's prayer in, prayers impressed me so much. 
I remember all of us kids kneeling before my dad as he would pray to the Lord and he would say, God, save the lost in all the parts of the world, not just in Scotland, but in all the lands. And he would cry out for the conversion of the heathen world and to service for Jesus. We would, he says, I would rise from my knees. He's telling, thinking about his childhood. And I would see the light on my father's face. And I wish I was like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, that he would privilege me and prepare me to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the lost and heathen world. It was a happy home. It was a Christian home. It was a home where dad said, we are going to serve the Lord. And they would daily, every day, read the word. And they would sing. And they would praise him. They were instructed and disciplined in the Lord. They were taught that God mattered. Jesus was the only Savior. And life was short. Eternity was forever. And they lived that kind of life. Oh, parents. If only we would do that. Grandparents, you would help us. You, you, a lot of you are my, grand, my children's grandparents and aunts and uncles. Let us create a culture for our young people of this kind of heritage. Which I'm going to talk about more next week in Psalm 1. Patton heard the need about these islands. About the missionaries that were martyred. And he kept... And he writes this, the Lord kept saying within me, since none better qualified can be got, rise and offer yourself. And he said, here, my Lord, send me. The wail and claims of the heathen were constantly surrounding my ear, sounding in my ears. His ears were ringing for the lost I saw them perishing for a lack of knowledge of true God in the gospel. My my own people that I ministered to, John was ministering in Glasgow, Scotland. They had the Bible. They had all of these things in easy reach, but they didn't have it on these islands. So he said, I'm going. God's calling me. I'm going. He told his church. Most of the, some of them said yes. Some of them looked at him and said, you're so talented. We think you're better used, used here. Look at all the work God's using you in inner city Glasgow. They said, you'll be eaten by the cannibals, one old man said to him. You're going to be eaten by the cannibals if you go. Why would you do that? John said, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. What courage, what boldness. So John takes his 19-year-old wife. He's 34. He marries Mary, 19. She says, you want to come with me to the ends of the earth? She says, yes, for the gospel's sake. And for four years, they labor on a little island called Tana. And it was a sowing of tears. He speaks of the the nature of the people that he comes to this island. Their spiritual condition was horrible. They were driven by slavish fear to the gods. 
They never knew a God of grace and mercy. He writes, The depths of Satan outlined in the first chapter of Romans were uncovered before my eyes on this island of people. Their daily life without veil and it was without excuse. My first impressions drove me to the verge of dismay. On beholding these natives in their paint and nakedness and misery, my heart was full of both pity and despair. He saw violence, nakedness, violence towards missionaries, and violence towards each other. They were always in war, and he was always getting in the middle of it. They would try to kill him as they tried to kill each other. There was abortion, infanticide. They would just kill the babies if they didn't want them or felt like they could take care of them. Widow strangling, and that, oh, a man would die, let's let's strangle the widow so she can go in the afterlife to be with him. Wife murder, he doesn't, she doesn't satisfy him or bothers him, let's knock her off. Theft, just zero morality he experienced. To add to that, the white man would come, slave, these traders that would come for sandalwood furniture, they would come to these islands and make life miserable for the missionaries and invoke and provoke, I should say, the islanders to hate the missionaries. He was constantly under threat walking around at times for days with people that threatened his life with muskets pointed at his head. And they just weren't going to do it, but he'd just pray, God, please preserve me, protect me. Malaria and measles brought by the traitors. Fourteen times John suffered from severe fever and probably malaria and other illness. And only a few months after being on the island, his young 19-year-old wife, Mary... She dies, dies of malaria. Having just given birth to her son, Peter, he writes, to crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy whom we had named after her father, Peter, was taken from me after one week's sickness on March 20th. Both of them die. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me, As for all others, it'd be more vain to try to paint my sorrows. Can you imagine that? Burying wife and son, burying him with his own hands, and then sleeping near the graves so that that the islanders don't dig them up and eat them. And crying out to God, and then then told by other missionaries, you should leave the place, you need to recover. And he said, no, because if I leave... I may never be able to come back. Stunned by this dreadful loss, he writes, in entering onto the field of labor to which the Lord had truly led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. But I was not altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me. And he writes about the grave of his wife and son. Whenever Tana, that was the island, turns to the Lord, think of the vision he had. Whenever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed that land for God in which I buried my dead with faith and hope. By the way, there are a lot of churches on the island of Tana. 
There is a gospel presence there. There's still a work that needs to be done. I've been in contact with a missionary this week from Tana. And God is at work because of the tears sown through this man. After laboring for many more years of learning, learning the language, writing it out, one of the missionaries there dies. He has to flee from his house. His house is burned down. He loses almost all his possessions except his journals and his Bible that he was translating. He has a few bright spots. There's some that were converted, just a few. He had his faithful friend Abraham, who was a, a new convert from another island who came over and helped. What a godly man Abraham was. He had his faithful and loyal dog, Kalutha, who would guard him and bark when they would come to threaten his life. One of the highlights was a chief that had been converted and gave his life with the missionary to share the gospel. And his own life was under threat now. He says this, Missy, that's what he called the missionary, Missy, when I see them thirsting for my blood, I just see myself when the missionary first came to my island. I desired to murder him as they now desire to kill me. Had he stayed away for such danger, I would have remained heathen. But he came and continued to come to teach us, till by the grace of God I was changed to what I am now. Now the same God that changed me to this can change these poor tannies to love and to serve him. I just want to pause to say, what in our lives do we endure for the sake of Christ and in love for people who are lost? I think that when we experience these types of things, I believe wholeheartedly we experience the presence and the blessing of God in a way that is unlike anything else. In the midst of these hard times, he'll write something like this. He'll, he'll say something so astounding. He says, did ever mother run more quickly to protect her crying child in danger's hour than the Lord Jesus hastens to answer believing prayer and send help to his servants in his own good time and way? So far as it shall be for his glory and good. Oh, may all my readers, all those that listen to the story hundreds of years later, if they knew and felt this, as in the days and ever since I have felt his promise is a reality. I tell you this story because I pray that I'd stir in you the real God, the God of John Patton is the God of, for us today. In 1862, John Patton, alone, no wife, no son, with another missionary couple, they flee the island. It was during the American Civil War. John flees the island, sticks it out, for those four years, it felt like a defeat. No missionaries left on the island. No church of Christ. Was he a failure? Felt like it. Have you ever felt like a failure in your work, in your parenting? You're praying. You're seeking for God to do a work in the lost around you. Your neighbors, your children, your grandchildren, your church. He goes 1,400 miles to Australia. That's the closest... Western civilization, and he goes all to the islands, the colonies of Australia, and for, for one year and probably about 400 sermons, 
400 times he goes from church to church, meeting house to anybody that would listen to him. He would bring clubs and, and feathers and things that he had brought back from the islands, just a few things he had, and he would tell them the stories, tell them about the lost, plead with them to give and to care for the lost for the sake of the gospel, and God stirred in the hearts of people to give. Children would give their pennies that would go to this missionary ship that would called the Dayspring that would deliver and send missionaries and goods to these islands. He goes back to Scotland. And as he goes back to Scotland, he preaches a message called, Come over and help us. I just pause here and say, I think that Brian Mack would like to say, Come over and help us. Other missionaries would want to say, Come over and help us. And I have been praying daily, and I pray this, that God will call some to go over and help the Max in Cameroon, and it might be some of you, and God will show you, and he will start stirring in your hearts, and you will not be able to understand it, but God will be at work. And young people in here, teenagers, there's a lot of you here, I pray that God will help you by stirring in your heart these years, and he will send you. And we will have the obligation of being your sending church and the joy of doing that. And we will support you for many years. So he goes, during this time in Scotland, one in every six pastor in his denomination became a missionary. Think of that. Think of going to all these churches and, and one-sixth of all the churches you visit, they, their pastor says, I'm called to the missions. Sorry, church. And, and what he says is, this did not cripple the home church in Scotland. Far from it. It brought zeal and energy and life like never before. Because you see, he, he writes, one of the surest signs of life is the effort of the church to spread the gospel beyond its bounds. It's a fixed point in the faith of every missionary that the more the church and congregation interests itself in the heathen, he says... It will be blessed and prospered at home. If we want life in this church, a mark of it, we're going and we're sending and we're giving two or three times what we right now give. And we figure out all these other ways that we can support and care for the nations. And when that happens, life will start happening here in a greater way. I'm not saying we neglect evangelism here. We better not. But... Let's not think we're just going to figure everything out here. Then we're going to go to the nations. We're going to go and care for our missions program. It is both. God calls us to that. And God's going to call some of you to go if we're a healthy, living church. So, so he goes. And he goes back. And in 1866, he heads back to the islands with his new wife. He met another wife, Margaret. And she says, yes, I'll go. And he takes her back to, he wants to go to Tana, but they said, no, it's not the time to go back to Tana. He goes to another island called Aniwa. And him and his wife, Margaret, are going to spend the next 14 or 15 years on that island. And about 41 in all, after some visits to the Europe and America, they're still violent dishonest cannibals. So much so, he, he's looking to build a house. He's trying to find the right location. He asks and consults the, the islanders there, and he says, where should we build it? And they say, build it up on that. And it was helpful to have it in a highland. So he, he builds it on this highland. Well, the motive for the, the islanders was, if they build it there, where we just told them, 
that's, that's an old burial ground. And they'll discover these bones. And we believe that when the gods see that they're going to the sacred place where the bones are, the gods will kill them. They'll get sickness. They'll die. And then we'll take all their goods. That was their motive. They told the missionaries that later. Well, as they were digging up the foundation to build their house that would end up being a wonderful house for decades and decades, they discovered these bones and said, what are these bones? And they very piously said, Missy, uh, we are not like the Tannese. We don't eat the bones. Of which he means, we eat the flesh, we just don't eat the bones. So, on digging the foundation, so they, they continue and they serve and they teach they learn the language and they put it into writing. His wife, Margaret, was amazing. I don't know as much about her. She wrote dozens, thousands of letters back home. They were published in a book called Letters from the South Seas and are, tell about their home life and the family life and all of that. He leaves all of that out of his autobiography. But a turning point came when he said, I need to sink a well. There was no fresh water on this volcanic island. No fresh water. All the, the water they would get was from rain, and they would collect that rainwater, but they were very dependent on, sometimes they didn't have a lot of rainwater. And so he said, what if I sunk a well? God, would you help me to sink a well? They've never seen something like this. So he starts to dig on his own, and then he hires some help, and they dig, and they just start mocking him. There's no way. You can't get water from the ground. It only comes up from above. And he just kept digging and digging. 30 feet down, he's like, oh God, please, please give us water. And the next day, water starts to come up from the, from the ground. And then he's saying, please God, make it like non-salty. <laughs> make it fresh. And it was a miracle to the islanders. Never had they seen water rain from below. So much so that one of the key tribal members, a chief, was converted to the Lord and preached a sermon to the rest of the tribe and said, so I, your chief, do now firmly believe that when I die, I shall see the invisible Jehovah God with my soul, with my soul as Missy tells me, not less surely than I have seen rain come from below the earth. For from this day, my people... I must worship the God who has opened us this well and who fills us from rain below. Henceforth, let's get all our gods, all our idols, and let's burn them. And let us be taught by the Missy how to serve the God who can hear, the Jehovah who gave us this well and who will give us every other blessing. For he sent his son Jesus to die for us and bring us to heaven. This is what the Missy has been telling us ever since we've been to Niwa. He's been, he landed on Aniwa. We laughed at him, but now we must believe him. The Jehovah God has sent rain from the earth. Why should he not send us his son from heaven? Oh, that God just works through his people. Just to be faithful, to be bold, be courageous. What would he have you do to just be courageous in your life? Because you just love God and you want others to know God. So the next dozen years, he, 
He serves there. A church, church is not just built like buildings. I'm talking about congregations are formed. People are saved. They're baptized and taught. And he didn't go quick with baptisms. He didn't just say, well, you ask Jesus in your heart. Okay, let's baptize you. He would teach them for over a year and examine them. Okay, do they really, are they following their other gods? Are they really putting their trust in Christ? He would baptize them. Families, the island was revived and converted. It was just an amazing work of God on this island as God was saving, changing lives. Families were formed for the first time where husbands and fathers cared for their wife and children. They would, they would establish family devotions and worships in their home. And the Lord's Day, the worship of God's people, Sunday was the best day of the week on the island of Tana. So that years later, John writes, When I returned to so-called civilization and I saw how the Lord's Day was abused in white Christendom, my soul longed after the holy Sabbaths of Aniwa. Because that's where they worshipped God, truly. Patton writes, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus. And by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Just wonder if we would have that kind of zeal. I, we, we, it's not a name it and claim it thing. That's not what he was all about. It was, but it was this, this kind of, you said all authority and power is yours. Go make disciples. I just am going to take you at your word. And I'm going to believe you have disciples on the island of Aniwa that you intend to save. You have disciples in Tana. You have disciples on all these islands of Vanuatu. And I claimed it for Christ. And you gave me Aniwa. Patton would labor there for 41 years on and off, helping the cause of missions there. Come over and help us was his message. He would go to Charles Spurgeon's church, the great preacher in London, and Spurgeon would introduce his friend John Patton with his big beard. He would say, here is John Patton, king of the cannibals. And yet he knew he was, there was only one king of the cannibals, and that's Jesus Christ. His brother, James, said, you need to write this in an autobiography, and I commend it to you, John Patton missionary to the Hebrides. It's a long and really worthwhile read. He's an amazing writer. Before his death, more than 25 of the 30 inhabited islands were had a gospel established on those islands. A remarkable man. A remarkable passion. What a life. I, I don't think any of... I, I don't know. Some of you might be a John Patton. But even if you weren't, it doesn't matter because God is faithful and is going to work through people lesser in courage than him. He only had courage because of God's strength. But, but he will use you and me when we are gripped by the verses I began. All authority is mine, Jesus says. Go. Go make disciples in your neighborhood. Go make disciples in Flint, in Linden, and Fenton. Go make disciples in Cameroon, in Thailand, in some of the Near East countries that are unreached because I died on the cross and I have purchased people from every tribe, 
nation and land so that they will worship me forever. Now go make disciples because I'm in charge and I'll be with you. God wants everyone in this church to be obsessed with this. So my lessons are three that I give you for John Patton's life. Three lessons that inspire our lives. No matter where we are, whether you're going to be a missionary or not, no matter what age you're in. For some of you, be inspired that you're going to spend the next 70 years of your life for Christ, obsessed with something, one idea. And for some of you, the last chapter of your life, the best chapter of your life. Praying, giving, encouraging, stoking the fire of others. All three of these lessons come from the text of Matthew 28. So here's the first lesson, and it comes from this passage. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I commanded you. Here's the first lesson. John Patton had a joyful obsession. It was a joyful obsession with the great commission of Christ. And so should we. It's not for just a select few disciples. It's for every one of us. It started in his home. When he went to his mom and dad and said, Mom and dad, I think I'm called to the islands, but what do you think? Well, when others were doubting, when others were saying, no, you should just stay here, what would you say? I just I wonder what you would say if your if you're grandchild, if your grandchild or your son or daughter comes to you and says, I think... God wants me to go to Tanzania. He wants me to go to Thailand. He wants me to go to Hong Kong or China or Malaysia. What would you say? This is what these parents said. We don't want to bias you, but we must tell you why we praise you for this. We praise God for this decision. Your father and mother... It has said on our heart, your dad wanted to be a minister, but he couldn't be. Ever since you were young, we consecrated you to the Lord, and we prayed our hearts out that you would be called to the mission field. If God saw fit to call, make you a missionary of Christ, and it has been our constant prayer that he, you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your, our offering. Long spare you and give you many souls for the heathen world for your hire. That's the kind of parents we need to be. If we're not, we're not, we're not sold and surrendered to Jesus. We're raising our kids to shoot them out as arrows into the kingdom. They might not all be called. They're not all called. But we should want, we should, we should desire for them to, to let their life count for Christ. What about his wife? Three months. Dies at 19. That's not a tragedy. She's in heaven. But she was joyfully obsessed with this call. She says in her letter to mom, the last letter she wrote to her mom, you must not think that I regret coming here and leaving my mother if I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Oh no, I do not regret leaving home and friends, even though I feel it dearly. John's passion to go make disciples 
was in the face of some saying, yeah, but there are people at home that need to be saved. What about the people at home? Why go there when there are lost people right here and you're making a difference here? And he says, yes. He says, yes. That might be true. But I want you to know this, that the people that use those kind of arguments, they don't care about the heathen here. And those heathen there don't have an opportunity to hear the gospel. He says this boldly. This is a conviction to each of us today. We can all face this. He said, yeah, the people that make those arguments don't go to that part of the world. There's, there's a need here. They would ungrudgingly spend more on a fashionable party at dinner or tea or concert or ball or theater or on some ostentatious display or worldly and selfish indulgent ten times more perhaps in a single day than they would give for a year or in a half a lifetime for the conversion of the whole heathen world either at home or abroad. So don't tell me you're really concerned about the heathen here. For they're, they're, I pity them, he says. They're not being stewards of the money that God has given them. I'm called to go. Listen to his heart. I pray this is our heart and faith church of Linden, for Linden, and then for all the nations. My heart bleeds for the heathen. Add the word, my heart he. My heart bleeds for those who are lost without Christ. And I long to see a teacher for every tribe and missionary of islands of the New Hebrides. The hope still burns that I may witness it, and then I could gladly rest. He said, oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals in the New Hebrides. But since I can't do that... May he help me to use every moment and every power still left to me to carry for this beloved work. Do you have that joyful obsession? Let's pray for that as a church. Would you pray for that? For, if you don't have it, because I'm sure we just all don't have it or else we'd be probably much more radical. I would be much more radical. Let's pray, God, wake us up to the joyful obsession of your call to take the gospel across my street, across my town, across my cubicle, across, in my school, in my work, in my world. And here am I, send me. So is the passion, and so is a really important lesson that we could learn from John G. Patton. But the second thing is, about the, is related to the realities of the Great Commission. Second lesson is from this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. John Patton, number two, had a living confidence in the authority and power of Christ. And so should we. Let's, let's not play church. Let's... Let's either believe that God, all authority has been given to Jesus. It has not been given to the next president of the United States. All authority has been given to Jesus. It doesn't matter who's the president. I, you know what I pray for? I, I do pray that the best government that will bring prosperity for the gospel to the whole world, that's what I hope for the most. 
And I'll tell you what, whoever the president is doesn't matter at all compared to who is all authority has been given to. That's Jesus. He's the king and lord of the world. And he can convert the president of the United States. And I pray that he will. And I pray that he will, he will convert our governors and our leaders but he, so that the gospel would go in prosperity. God's, may we, he had a living confidence in the authority and power of Christ. He, he would, that's how he could go to the islands. God gave him, said he was going to make disciples. I'm going to go. He's, all, he had, he's the boss. He's, he's the authority. He wouldn't tell me to go unless he was going to do it, unless he was going to make disciples. So I'm going to make disciples. He gave you children and grandchildren. Believe that God intends to make them disciples through your earnest work of sharing the gospel with them and with sharing the gospel and the, with the lost Oh, that we would have such a zeal and a burden. We would pray like we believe all authority has been given so that when we pray for the Max and we pray for the other missionaries, we, we cry out to God for him to take that authority power and make his kingdom come in Cameroon as it is in heaven. His kingdom to come in India as it is in heaven, in the Ukraine, in Brazil as it is in heaven, and in Linden as it is in heaven. John Patton was so consumed with this, and he saw the power of God in conversions. There's no other explanations. How, how cannibal islands full of darkness, with just no morality of what at all, in family and life, it was just terrible, just turned upside down in the matter of decades. Then the power of the converting work, the new birth of the gospel. So much so that he writes, John writes, John Patton writes, and he says, Oh, he says, when I have read of the shallow objections that people have about missions, oh, they're not being converted. They're just kind of taking on the West's ways, but they're not really being converted. It's not a real conversion in missions. Oh, what a waste. He says, oh, how my heart would long for them to just be put on the island for just one week. And in one week, see the native natural man, apart from Christ, alongside of one that had been saved like old Abraham, as he nursed and cared for the people that tried to kill him and shared the gospel with him. And they would see it was no joke. Salvation and conversion was a real thing. God's spirit does a work. And oh, that God would do that in our children and in you, brothers and sisters. There's some of you that need to be converted. All authority has been given in heaven and in earth. And that is the authority to change your heart. To change the hearts of Muslims all over the world. Of people that are still following animist beliefs and all the millions of gods in India. All authority to change their hearts. Oh, that we would believe that God can do this. A heathen has been all his days groping after peace of soul and dark superstition and degrading rites, he says. You pour into his soul the light of salvation. He learns of God's love, that God sent his son to die for him, that he is the heir of eternal life and through Jesus Christ, by the blessed enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, he passes into the third heaven of joy and he burns to tell everyone the glad tidings. They become missionaries. These 
these new saved islanders. Oh, that God would give us such a zeal, such an understanding, such a conviction. This commission is real and it comes with, with a punch. It comes with power, all authority through the, through the one that sent, sends us out on it. John believed that and so should we. So should we as we parent our children and grandparent them. Here's the last, last lesson. Comes from the last phrase of the Great Commission. Behold, or lo, I am with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm sending you out and I'm not leaving you. I will not, I will not send you where I will not go. I will be there for you. Here's the third lesson. John Patton had a comforting awareness of the presence of Christ. And so should we. You and I need a comforting awareness of God's presence working as we surrender our lives to Jesus. If your children go to the mission field, you surrender yet rejoice that Jesus is going with them. If you go to Flint, serving the Lord or Linden or wherever it is, Jesus is going with you. Jesus goes with you at your work. Jesus goes with you at school. Jesus goes with you as you care for your children. For John, that meant I'm facing dangers of all kinds. I didn't share that much of it. But here's one. With clubs raised to kill us, he says, they encircled me and the other missionaries and teachers in a deadly ring, and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first musket. My heart rose to the Lord Jesus, and I saw Jesus watching all of the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice from heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club would prevail to strike us, a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to throw, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the finger without the permission of Jesus. He rules all nature and all objects and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. Yet I never could say, he says, but don't get me wrong, I could not say on those occasions that I was with it entirely without fear. Nay, he says, I have felt my reason reeling, my sight coming and going, my knees smiting each other. I was scared to death, but I knew God was with me. And without his abiding consciousness, of the presence of God, he writes, I would go insane. But lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, would come back to me over and over again, he writes. One last story and we're done. He fled, this was in Tana, where he, it was really difficult. He, he was thrown out of his house. They burned it. He's running for his life. He's trying to escape to the other end of the island where another missionary was for maybe ships to get them. And one native says to him, climb in this chestnut tree to be safe. There's a war going on and there's actually a threat on your life. Hide in this tree. So he stays in there all night. Imagine this. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there, they lived before me as but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets 
and the yell of savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. I just hope we'd learn that, the presence of God in our lives, whether it be in cancer or in just difficulties with family or whether it be just the faithful work in which God has us. We know His presence and say, I'm safely in the arms of Jesus. He says, The Lord drew near to me and spoke more soothingly to me in that night as the moonlight struck against my throbbing brow. Alone, yet not alone. If it be for the glory of God, I do not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy His consoling counsel and fellowship. If thus, this is the question to us, reader, listener, if thus thrown back upon our own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very brace of death, whatever it might be for you, have you a friend that will not fail you as such? That is the God that we have. That is the God that we preach and teach and we believe at Faith Church. That is the God who we are immortal until our life is done with us. And yet He's called us for a purpose, for something that we might be accused of being a one idea person. You're just obsessed with something. Obsessed with one idea. Yes, Jesus. Jesus' name being proclaimed where he is not yet proclaimed, whether that be across my street or across the ocean. Oh, that God would speak his word through the testimony of John Patton. May he give the members of Faith Church and this pastor, all the leaders and the children, a passion and obsession to be one idea people. Our lives would be for Jesus for his kingdom, for the lost, for the nations. And for that to be real and to last, we need to know him in his power and his presence. So let me finish with how John finishes. John Patton finishes his autobiography. He addresses the readers and says, boy, you've been with me for a long time. It's a long biography, 500 pages. Here you go. Here's how you should end it. Reader, listener, fare thee well. Thou hast accompanied me, not with some little prophet I trust, and not without noting many things in which to bless the Lord God, in whose honor these pages have been written. In your life and in mine, there is at least one last chapter, one final scene of your life awaiting us. God our Father knows where and how by His grace I will live out that chapter and I will pass through that scene. In the faith and in the hope of Jesus, who has sustained me from childhood till now. As you close this book, and I, as I say, as I close this sermon, go before your Savior and pledge yourself upon your knees by His help and sympathy to do the same. And let me meet you. And let us commune with each other again in the presence and glory of the Redeemer. How will you live out that last chapter? Let's pray. Father, as we finish with song, I pray for my five children. I pray for the, all the teens and young kids, even that are not listening because they're back with class and maybe practicing for Christmas program. But I pray for their parents. 
Pray for anyone that's watching now or later. Stir in us a white hot passion for your namesake among the world and around us. Help us not to waste our lives. Help us to not dabble with meaningless ideas, but one main idea, and that's Christ Jesus. Oh God, stir us, change us. Help us to know the one who stirs us and that all authority has been given you and you'll go with us. In Jesus' name, amen.